KOW. What a privilege to sit down in a garden house in the countryside outside of Berlin with a big mic and a computer recording and having between two men, 49 years old, both both interested in art and the darkness of their own minds and the world and talk together in an evening, in a dark winter evening outside of Berlin. It's wonderful. Thank wow. you. You really moderate. Yeah. Are you a moderator? I guess that's a good point. I moderate. Yes. I think I try to moderate between those different energies, worlds. But I'm not a neutral moderator. The situation that is being moderated is completely fucked up. So neutrality is not possible. Wait, 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 wait. What are you moderating? What is the situation? And in what situations actually do you moderate? I moderate between one part of myself. In this time and age, I will define it as a white, lower middle class, Western European subject, male, heterosexual most of the time. Same here. On the one hand, and then the worlds that we look at through media. And I'm interested mostly in the constructing apparatus of our society, the, 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 the people that carry it. At the gallery, we're just showing your earliest work, yeah. episode one from 2003. Correct. A film that many people, I think, have not seen because you were first known for Enjoy Poverty. Yes. Episode three, then for White Cube. Yeah. And to find out what moderating could mean in your case, it could be really interesting to go back to this work mm. and to make the people understand what we're actually talking about. Can you briefly resume? What are you doing in this roundabout 40-minute video? What do we see? Um, you see an earlier version of me. I was 27 when I filmed it. It was my first serious artwork. I decided in advance that it was going to be my first serious artwork. It was not a coincidence. I had done some little studies to develop the vocabulary and to develop the conflict that I wanted to unearth. In the film, you see me uh, walking to the Chechen border. Chechnya in 2000 was occupied by Russian armed forces. It was a war zone. Not just war with bombs and stuff, but also wars with uh, concentration camps, uh, people being abducted, beheaded. Um, it was like mafios, hell on earth for the people inhabiting that. Um, so I walk to the border and, and you see me walking to the border because I hold this little camera that I sometimes point at myself, at my face. And sometimes I pointed at the place that I'm walking towards to a military checkpoint. I walk to the border until I'm stopped by a Russian soldier with a gun. And he asks me what I'm doing and if I'm filming. And I say, yes, yes, I'm filming. I want to go to Chechnya. And he, he stops me and he tells me to step into a car. He kind of 
tries to defuse the situation. He's not out there to kill me or to arrest me. He says, this is crazy. This is this guy. He's not from here. He doesn't get anything. He's like, he's he, not even a journalist. He's not even a journalist. He brings me to his commander and the commander says, who is he? Yeah. He's like, he's like a journalist from Holland, a young guy. Then the commander says, well, you know, this is a military checkpoint. You can't go to Chechnya. I get back into the car and the military guy that, that first stopped me gives me some advice. I was able to film all of this. And he says, don't you have a girlfriend? I say, yeah, there's a girl I'm in love with. Well, go back to this girlfriend and forget this wretched place. This mm -hmm. place cannot be understood by you. Go back home. Mm -hmm. But that's not what you do then, because you actually go into Chechenia? Yes. I go anyway, and I uh, interview people in Chechnya and in refugee camps outside of Chechnya, and I ask them what they think about me. And I ask them if they think I'm a handsome guy. And I ask them how this young girl that I'm in love with, that was first put on the stage by this Russian soldier who stopped me. Mm -hmm. I ask some people how I could um, convince this girl to uh, love me. And you show them a photo? No, there's no photo. I just talk about her. Yeah. But there's a, there's a young Chechen woman who lives in a refugee camp who reminds me of this girl mm -hmm. back in Brussels. And, and I ask her quite literally, how can I seduce this other woman who looks a little bit like you, but who's back in Brussels? How, how can I enter into a relationship with her? Let's stick to this scene mm. because you don't ask her that at the beginning what you do is you ask her if it's enough for her to love a guy or if she wants to be loved as well and if that is important and there's very flirty conversation starting between the two of you because you show interest in her and in her love feelings it feels like it becomes a kind of rare, intimate conversation. Yeah. She looks at you with very bright eyes. She's very pretty. She's very pretty. And then you say, then you talk about the girl you're in love with. And she turns her face away, kind of irritated that it's not about her anymore. And suddenly it's all about you. Isn't that the logic of this film? That is correct. That's the logic of this film. So what are you moderating there? Uh, I'm, I'm moderating spectatorship. Uh, I'm exhibiting the privilege of being in the center of the world, coming from the center of the world, economically speaking, politically speaking, militarily speaking, and media speaking, going to the periphery of that world. And I moderate terrible inequalities in those exchanges. They are clear because we have by then seen ruins and desperate people and people begging for food and people being very afraid of the bombs. So we have seen all of these inequalities already. But then I also throw my own desires for love into the game and for a connection with somebody into the game. And indeed, 
the connection that I seek is not with this Chechen girl, it's with some girl back home in Brussels. So I'm moderating those inequalities, but I'm also the perpetuator. I'm the, I'm this completely self-obsessed guy who goes outside to moderate his own position in this world, but by looking at other people and by interviewing other people. How did you come to choose that? And more specifically, I want to point on one situation in that film where mothers yell at you that you should fucking help them and not just be there for, to make some images and carry them with you. And you openly tell them that you're not there to help them, which we could say today is just honest. <laughs> you're just unpacking the truth of this typical situation when journalists go to war zones, they basically want to shoot images and sell them to, to their news outlets, and they're not supposed to help. They're not people. supposed to help, yeah. Nevertheless, when you as an individual confront that situation, it's just terrible. And what surprised me is the way how you hold that conversation, how you can look in somebody's eyes and say, yeah, correct, I'm not here to help you. And I wondered when I saw the scene again, where did you develop the capacity to hold a situation like that? When in your life were you trained <laughs> into this kind of, I don't know if it's a stability or a mirroring effect or a bouncing effect or a turning things around, I don't know how I would describe it, but it's not a typical way how people would behave in such a moral conflict that you actually bring up yourself by the sheer moving there. Yeah, your question is, how did I develop that capacity? Mm -hmm. uh, I want to make a little step back. The women aren't yelling at me. They actually take pity on me. They look at me with as if I'm a child, and they're, they are holding the space, actually. And I'm an intruder in that space. And they see me not as a perpetrator, but as somebody who doesn't understand what's going on. A young guy. They look at me with pity, I even think. Mm -hmm. I have not, at that point, understood the ravages of war and what it does with people. How the adrenaline eats you up from the inside. I learned it in Chechnya later because I felt very endangered and sad but these women have lived it for years and they have no way out so they know it very very well now the capacity comes simply and only because i don't go around life like that i don't think anyway i made an analysis prior to going to chechnya and it was reinforced being there of the politics of spectatorship Who watches what and for what reason? What's the economy, the political economy of spectatorship? Mm. In what political and economic configurations do some people who are well-to-do and who are not in danger look at other people who are desperate and who are in danger? Mm. What construct allows for that? And how is it moderated? Mm -hmm. We think it's moderated through witnessing through you know that's what journalists say they do we go look at desperate places we make images we will show it to the rest of the world and it's made and in one way or the other help resolve that situation so that's a moderation system 
we know that moderation system is not effective. It doesn't live up to its promises. It's a farce. It's a lie, actually. It's a lie towards the people that you film and photograph, but it's also a lie told to the people who then see those images and consume those images. They are also told the lie that simply looking at images or engaging with stories of other people in desperate situations, that this somehow brings the world closer, that empathy will exist, and that indeed political economic systems will will be corrected and the harm that is done will be undone. The harm is not undone. Mm -hmm. The war will go on, other types of inequality and extraction will go on. And my goal was to exhibit that. Mm -hmm. I set out to make a film about how these films, these media reports, this critical engaged art that was starting to emerge, the documenta by Okwi and Wazor, mm-hmm. and even the one prior to that by Catherine David, had some of those projects mm-hmm. in which Western well-to-do art audiences could engage through film or through other projects with people who were exploited, whose resources are being extracted. And I thought that that already in those art exhibitions were to some degrees lies. Lies not that the people who are filmed and photographed are not being extracted. Of course they are. That's clear. Showing people who are in desperate situations and showing this to people who are in well-to-do situations, that this will create a real connection, mm-hmm. that this will create real empathy, maybe even real political or economic change. I observed going to those documentas that the political and economic change was not going to happen. And in contrast, we could say it comforts our nice consciousness about the injustice that's yeah. in the world. Yeah, and it doesn't problematize the position of the viewer. Mm-hmm. That was my main critique mm-hmm. on it, or my main discomfort with it. Mm-hmm. Yes, images of exploited people, people from whom everything is stolen, are exhibited in art exhibitions. Sometimes those images are made by those communities themselves, in Oquis and Wazors, Documenta, there were various... So you could think, okay, this is inclusive, this is emancipatory even, that these images are now shown, these lives are exhibited, these problems are exhibited to, you know, on the global stage, on Documenta in Kassel. But what was not problematized is the ease with which those images can at will be either consumed or not consumed. Um, consequences can be taken out of them, or not be taken out of them. The the viewer is free. The viewer mm-hmm. can choose whether this or that injustice is worth my time, is worth political change, is worth economic change. And would I be wrong if I say you try to take away that freedom from me? Yes. Through putting me in this moral conflict? Yes. I wanted to take that space that you can choose freely whether you want to engage with it or not, and that there is no cost if you don't want to. We know there's a big cost to be paid for the people in those situations if they are not being viewed and if there is no political or economic change. The cost is huge, but the spectator is free. She or he can choose whether to engage with it or not. And I thought this freedom of choice 
this position of privilege needs to be contrasted directly, not through the interface of a documenta, but directly with the lack of choice of the people who are stuck in those situations. And can you now try to be precise methodologically? How do you do that? How did you do that? How do you do that to take that choice away from me? My tools were quite limited. But what I tried is to use myself as an average documenta visitor or an average The Guardian or New York Times or Frankfurter Allgemeiner reader, just an average, somewhat educated, art-loving individual. Mm -hmm. And I positioned myself with all this freedom of choice directly in interactions with people who have no freedom of choice. Mm -hmm. So that that contrast that is glossed over if you go to a documenta would no longer be glossed over that the confrontation between the lack of choice and the freedom of choice would be as brutal as possible. Mm -hmm. Now, coming back to the scene that you wanted me to go to, the girl in a refugee camp, she has little choice to survive than to live in this refugee camp. She can go out, she'll, you know, terrible things will happen to her. She'll be bombed or killed or other things could happen. Bad things could happen. She has very little choice. She's stuck in that tent in the mud. I have a lot of choice. I can go to Chechnya or I can not go to Chechnya. I can take an image. I can not take an image. And so when I tell her that ultimately I'm visiting her not to have a deeper connection with her, but to have a deeper connection with some girl who lives back in Brussels and has an equally privileged life as I have, I hope that's the methodology that it becomes completely untenable, that it becomes completely unacceptable that she has so little choice and I have so much choice. Mm -hmm. So when I exhibit all the choices I have, I try to exhibit this terrible inequality, but not as some outside phenomena, like, oh, this terrible inequality mm -hmm. is happening in Bangladesh or in Chechnya or, you know, in slums or what. No, no, it's in me. I'm the representative. Some people felt very provoked by your work, calling it cynical. Like, how can he? Yeah. How can he just behave that way and instrumentalize these people? And it's, of course, a misunderstanding because... I think it's a misunderstanding. I'm not saying that these people that say that I'm exploiting that woman are wrong. I am exploiting that woman. But I'm exploiting that woman exactly in the way that this woman and all kinds of other women and men are being exploited continuously. So I make an exemplary picture, construction, of this type of exploitation. And that's how funny and, and, and so hurtful that we see these mechanisms every day, every day, every day, every day. I'm a whistleblower. But the way you whistleblow is that suddenly when you do something that happens every day all around the planet, then they suddenly have a problem because in the art world, it's not supposed to happen. Yeah. We think, we like to think of the art world as the exception. Economic systems are in unequal. You know, there's a reason why we are in a nice, warm place. 
in the countryside of Berlin, we have a computer, we have uh, a nice drink, etc. On the one hand, and that other people are sitting in refugee camps in the cold, in the mud. These two worlds are connected. They are not disconnected. In the art world, we like to think that the economy of the arts is an exception to the, to the broader economy and that we can bring peace, happiness, sympathy, kindness, care. Okay. Mm-hmm. We like to think that we do that. I think by now, even in 2003 or 2000 when I filmed it, it came out in 2003, but I filmed it in 2000, there was already an overwhelming amount of evidence that the art world is actually not, structurally speaking, a place that brings more equality to the world. I think since there has been much, much, much more evidence, many texts, many critical analysis, that the economy of the arts and the gestures that are produced and exhibited in the arts are part of extractive capitalist systems. They are not offering an alternative to the suffering. They are part of it. And that was not enough for you, because if we jump to the situation 20 years later, almost 20 years later, Mm. in the Congo, you have chosen years ago to develop a different practice that does not only make this analysis, but actually do something about it. In Enjoy Poverty, I I try to push it even further in Enjoy Poverty, episode three. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, there was, of course, a lot of uh, pushback from various corners on that film. I used, by and large, similar strategies as in episode one. Uh, the pushback was that it was seen as even more cynical. I go to Congo, plantations, war zones, people who are completely enrolled, instrumentalized in global capitalism especially on the plantations, but also in the wars, because the wars are about coltan mines, gold mines. Uh, and there too, I wanted to exhibit how structural the extraction was and how making art about that structural extraction was equally extractive, not just mm-hmm. in my work, mm-hmm. in any work, mm-hmm. in any work that was not also redistributive. Mm-hmm. And very few artworks at the time were redistributive. Um, I want to give one example of how art was not redistributive. Uh, Steve McQueen made a beautiful film about those coltan mines. It's called Graves End. It was shown in 2007 in the Venice Biennial in the British Pavilion. And it shows, you know, the terrible labor conditions in those mines, those coltan mines in Congo. And it, uh, you know, made a really brilliant analysis of that extraction and how the coltan went to high-tech industries in the UK, indeed, to make iPhones and other things. So those two things were exhibited, the extraction in Congo and the value accumulation in high-tech industries in outside of London. This analysis was exhibited in the Venice Biennial. And there, too, I thought there is one part really missing The part that is missing from this analysis is that I, as a Venice Biennial spectator, can look at this inequality, but my subject position as a viewer, as a consumer of that analysis of inequality, is not enough made part of the equation. 
I Indeed, can, the production of the artwork follows the same structural pattern. Exactly. And I, as a spectator, have, again, the freedom of choice to engage with it or to not engage with it. I can enter the pavilion or not. Mm -hmm. I can then change my consumption patterns or not. I can try and change a political system or not. We know for a fact that very few people who will have seen that show by Steve McQueen will then later have changed political or economic systems. Mm -hmm. Probably not even Steve. I don't know. But I didn't. Mm -hmm. And I think 99.9% of the spectators did not. So it reinforced that it's not enough to make those analysis. Mm -hmm. In Enjoy Poverty, I try to, yeah, to push that to the very limit, to push to the very limit, to exhibit to the very limit that making critical art about inequality is sadly not changing the inequality and it offers another beautiful artwork to be consumed by well-to-do audiences. And those well-to-do audiences have the freedom of choice and they will choose not to alter the situation. All of that is in Enjoy Poverty. After Enjoy Poverty, you did not leave the Congo. Instead, yeah. you intensified yeah. your relationship to the Congo. So what did you do then? Even people on plantations. One day a journalist can come and make a film about how terrible the conditions are. The next day the journalist leaves to write her or his report. If you, as a plantation worker, want to voice the same critique, the next day you'll be arrested. And if you maintain your critique and vocalize it, you may well end up with a bullet in your head. So that position of critique is a very rarefied position. Few people have it, let alone that you could make a living of that critique. Some artists can, some journalists, some NGO people, some politicians, some activists. But most people, not only will they potentially get a bullet through their head, they will definitely starve of hunger. Because mm. if they critique the situation, they will be unemployed and they will be marginalized and they will be outcasts from society. So the only people that can make a living out of critiquing inequality are well-to-do rich people mm -hmm. with good connections. Mm -hmm. I thought this is not right. We need to make sure that impoverished plantation workers can also make a living out of critique. Mm -hmm. If I take any of the claims of art seriously, care, uh, transparency, subjectivity, finding your own voice, and making a living out of it, if I want to take any of those seriously, And, and if I want to believe in art, then obviously people who live on plantations and who have a lot to critique and who have a lot of talent, a lot of vision, they too should be able to live of the critique on inequality. So the gambit was, the, the attempt was, if art adding subjectivity critique to the world, and on top of that, finding an audience and making a living of it, If that is true, and these were some of the promises why I went to art school, then it should also be true for plantation workers. Not just for me, because I happen to be a Northwestern white European guy. If we believe that there is something universal in art, something universal in critique, something universal in subjectivity, then obviously that should also be valid for people in critiqued situations. But then obviously that's not enough, because what it also needs is 
resources for production, it needs communication network, it needs networks of distribution. Infrastructure needed to be built. Yeah. And I thought it needed to happen on a plantation. There is a lot of infrastructure in cities like Kinshasa or Lubumbashi, mostly because artists from Kinshasa and Lubumbashi have been building it to great effect. And, um, and it's fantastic and heroic that people build this. However, it was not yet built on plantations for communities who are not even working class. They're even lower than working class. They are, they are completely 100% marginalized. And in those communities, no curator ever visited. No white curator, no black curator, no Asian curator, no curator of a small off-space art center, no curator of Tate Modern ever visited those plantations. Zero times. And this is really funny for two reasons. One reason, those plantations have produced the capital with which institutions like Tate Modern have built up their programs. Money is extracted from plantations. There are interfaces, companies like Unilever. There are tax systems, what have you. In the end, part of the money extracted from those communities finances, critique, beauty, love in Tate Modern. And pays the salaries of these curators that you just quoted. Indirectly, through mechanisms, yeah. yes, through interfaces. Mm -hmm. So that's one reason why it's strange that none of those curators ever went out and had a look, where does this money that I build my program with, where does it come from? Yes. And not only where, but from whom? Mm -hmm. Who are these people that indirectly, for 100 years now, have been paying my salary? Mm -hmm. Who are those people who actually brick by brick build the very institution in which I can choose, if I like to, to do socially engaged art or painting or sculpture. I can show American artists, European artists. I can also invite artists from the continent. I can do whatever I like. Those infrastructures, those bricks of those museums have been funded by people from those plantations. So I thought it's very important. Which is just as a remark, this is not a metaphor. It's real. It's also, if I looked at the foundations of German museums, Kunstvereine, etc., so quite literally the wealth being created to allow the cultivated bourgeoisie to create these institutions came directly from exploitations of colonies. That is very true. Yeah, I think one prime example in Germany would be the, the Ludwig uh, Museum and the collection that historically comes from chocolate producers. Mm -hmm. So chocolate comes from plantations, mm -hmm. plantations in Africa and South America and in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. That's where it comes from. Mm -hmm. And people in those plantations are not being paid for their labor, mm -hmm. sometimes under conditions of slavery, sometimes under conditions of debt bondage. Still today. Yeah. Still today. Or even if it's not formally slavery or debt bondage, salaries will be so low that you can't live of it. Now, so that's one reason why I thought it's very important and crucial to also build these types of infrastructures on those plantations. And I want to say it's not only important and crucial for those communities, but it's equally, maybe even more important and crucial for those art institutions. If they want to properly understand their position mm -hmm. in this world, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of important for art, mm-hmm. that we have an understanding of the material conditions of our own existence. And most people would say that they are interested in that. I'm interested in it. Generations upon generations of artists have been interested in that. Institutional critique, minimalism, it deals with the structural conditions, the suspending apparatus in which the art world, sorry, the artwork can function. Mm -hmm. Space, light, sometimes capital, bricks, Mm -hmm. you know, many generations of artists, Hans Hacke being a really great example, have dealt with those questions, Mm -hmm. right? So I thought it's one step further and a necessary step further for those institutions to understand the structural material conditions of their own existence in relationship to communities on plantations. So that was one big reason why I thought it uh, would be very necessary and productive to build such infrastructure. And would it make sense now mm-hmm. to jump and describe the situation in Lusanga today? So if I would take a plane right now mm-hmm. to Kinshasa and then further to Lusanga, what infrastructure, what people, what situation, what economy... Will I meet there? Well, I can only describe that from my perspective. Your best bet would be to pick up a phone and call with people who are there and ask them to describe it. Mm -hmm. And you can do that if you like. I can give you the phone number of several people who speak perfectly French and with whom you can enter in a conversation. So I think that would be very important for you to do. From my perspective, through my eyes and through the mental apparatus that I have, which is maybe different than other people's mental apparatuses, uh, what you would find is a museum, a conference center, a library, uh, houses, and 300 people, a community of about 300 people who live at least partially from the production of critical art. How was that possible? It wasn't so hard. By hanging out, discussing ideas, finding some money, building infrastructure, create connections, create a space that people would then inhabit with their version of critique, their version of subjectivity, their understanding of what the world is and where it is now, where it has been and where it should go. So from my perspective, simply creating a level playing field between institutions, museums, that have been funded with labor from plantation workers on the one hand and those communities on those plantations on the other hand, a level playing field with the very limited means that I could gather, financial means, but also intellectual means and imagination. But with whatever we could gather, with the little means we could gather, we try to create this level playing field. And within this entire process, your position And your practice as a moderator changed. Yeah. Because whatever was built in Lusanga would have been impossible without the resources that you just described. Money, connections, networks, reputation, institutional credibility in wealthy countries, for example, that would support the projects. So you were the translator not only of ideas, concepts, but also of budgets moderating relationships, and what I see in The White Cube, in your last big film, is also your changing role from the white hero 
coming from enjoy poverty experience, trying to change realities within the Congo, then knocking your head against walls, the first village being almost burned, at least destroyed. So things don't work out as you all expect. You disappoint a lot of people. Then you restart, and it turns out that at the end of the day, there is this kind of community and its venues and its infrastructures that and that we have to say today is now fully auto-administrated by the community, which is not directly, it's not your concern, actually. But your role as the moderator between these worlds can still not disappear. Is that correct? I don't know. I, I think we're maybe going to get there, that it can disappear altogether. You are very right in saying that it changed. I think in Enjoy Poverty and also in the beginning of this process, I, 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 I still wanted to, uh, I wanted to exhibit the problem. I think my first intuition, my intuitions have changed over time, but I think in the beginning I was still interested in exhibiting the vanity of critique. The, the lack of engagement that people who have free choice have with people who have no choice. I wanted to still exhibit that. The first thing uh, that became operational on one of these plantations was a conference. And I invited all kinds of great critics and some activists. And, and, and I wanted to basically have a conference on the future of critique. And I was truly interested in how such a conference with those privileged positions would play out on a plantation where people have no choice. Would it force those, those critics to attach more consequence to their analysis? That completely failed. Mm. The, the people who were part of the conference, of course, as they always do, left two or three days later mm -hmm. back to wherever they came from. And the company that ran the plantation didn't want the project to continue. Mm. They thought maybe it could have a consequence. Mm -hmm. The main thing people on that plantation wanted was to get the land back, to get the plantation back. And the very fact that this conference had been taking place did not make the critics less sterile. However, people living and working on the plantation did see it as an opportunity to strengthen their, their demands to get the land back. They thought this international presence mm -hmm. is going to strengthen our demands to get our land back. Mm -hmm. The company that owned the plantation did not like that. Mm -hmm. So they pushed us out. They stopped the project. They didn't want the project to continue. So that in and of itself could have been a good art piece. It would, like Enjoy Poverty, have shown Critique is sterile if the people who produce the critique have freedom of choice. They can go back home. And the people who have no freedom of choice gain nothing. Mm -hmm. If I would have ended there, mm -hmm. it would have been potentially a work of art that is an analysis of a situation, but it wouldn't bring an and, outcome. And sad. And it's very sad. Very sad. I think that sadness would have been quite realistic of the way the world is. There are many, many conferences mm. where critique is discussed mm -hmm. and the only outcomes are that 
you know, critics talk with each other and, you know, dream up new critiques. And that's it. Whereas the outcomes for the people who inhabit the critique situations gain nothing from it. I could have rehearsed that. And I think in the beginning that was still part of my plan to rehearse it. Mm. But luckily, the project didn't stop there. Um, also because the people on site saw opportunity. Yeah, well, yeah. It's kind of contradictory because the project stopped also because they saw opportunity. They wanted more than just talk about yes, critique. Sure. They wanted something yeah. very material. Did they challenge you? The, the people on the ground? Yes. They, like stop talking to something? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that happened. Yeah, yeah. People said, we want our land back. It's nice that you come, but we want our land back. And you reacted on that. Yeah, but it failed completely in that first location. In that first location. Yeah. But now they actually have quite some hectares of the land. Right, but it's on another location. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the project went on, but on another location. Yeah, but a lesson was learned. A lesson was learned. It's not enough artistically, but also morally, intellectually, critically, it is not enough to simply rehearse critique. And so on this second location, and also because other people... I must really note René Gongo's enormous influence. He said we should continue it. And, you know, critique is fine, but it needs to lead to results. And the results should be that people get their land back. So that's, that became the aim and, and, and also the, 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 the driving logic of everything, including the art that was then made. People now do buy back land. They can't just get it back. If you get it back, you get a bullet through the head. So they buy it back. That's the least costly mm -hmm. methodology. Mm -hmm. It's fucked up, but it's the way it is. Mm -hmm. So within that logic, people started making art. KOW sold some of it. KOW sold some of it. Uh, some videos were made. Other art forms emerged. Performances, mm -hmm. embroideries, tapestries drawings, even digital art emerged. And this all leads to getting back land. All the work that is being made, even in its inner logic of the artwork, revolves around land. Mm -hmm. Even the sculptures that were made, mm -hmm. they talk about histories of expropriation. They talk about dreams of getting it back. They talk about the society that was destroyed, the types of subjectivity and critique and love that was destroyed through the establishment of these plantations. And they dream of what could emerge once the land is back. So subject-wise, the land is at the center of the works. Mm -hmm. This is true for the sculptures. It's true for the other art forms as well. Mm -hmm. On top of that, the sculptures were made first in earth, like the earth from under the ground of the people who made it, and then later reproduced in the products from that land, palm oil and cocoa, um, that are completely a product of the plantation, but they are also the currency to change what the plantation is, mm -hmm. to become again a place for love and critique and subjectivity. And reverse the economic logic. Yeah, what is reversed is that it's counter-extractive. It mm -hmm. reverses extraction. Mm -hmm. So that is what is being reversed. It reverses extraction, and it also reverses who can produce the critique. People who would otherwise make $9 per month doing cocoa and palm oil produce the critique, 
and with the pro proceeds, the money that comes out of it, not just the money, that's one key element, but it's not the only element. But with that money, they buy back the land and plant trees and turn it into forests again. So around the infrastructure that was built, the white cube, a little museum space, a conference center, a school, also houses, a library, around that, trees are now growing on land owned by this collective.